0: All right. All right, guys, I'm really excited for this. I have Dr. Jeffrey Mishlov with me. He's a licensed clinical psychologist, an accomplished radio and television interviewer. Dr. Mishlove is a past director of Association for Humanistic Psychology and served as the president of the Intuition Network. Jeffrey holds the only doctoral diploma in parapsychology to be awarded by an accredited American university. He was the host of the TV show Thinking Aloud and his new series, New Thinking Aloud, is an ongoing YouTube series. Dr. Mishlove, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm
1: fine. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Okay, so um, I, I want to understand everything about parapsychology, but I want to understand like what is what is consciousness? Where do you think it comes from and are we part of a bigger collective consciousness? I guess that was three questions but
1: <laughs> well let's start with the last one first because I, I would say the indications are uh, exactly that that uh, we' are all part of a, uh, a larger consciousness and that the, what we call the physical universe exists inside of consciousness. That's probably the the best way to explain the data of parapsychology that's been accumulating over the last hundred and fifty years. And so where do you think consciousness came from? Do you think
0: it came from, like, I guess, well, I guess I guess that would be your, if you believe in God, if you believe
1: in a source or God, or what, what do you think? Well, you know, you're asking sort of an ultimate question and uh, ultimate questions are very hard to answer with science or even with philosophy. There's, uh, there's no way of getting to the very bedrock, but if I were to quote Max Planck, who was the founder of quantum physics, he would say consciousness is the bedrock. You can't get underneath consciousness, that it, maybe it was always here. Yeah. That's very interesting. So how would you define parapsychology? Uh, Parapsychology is a science. It has been recognized by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And uh, it is the science that studies extrasensory perception, which includes telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and retrocognition. And Psychokinesis, which can be thought of as mind over matter that also includes psychic healing, and also questions associated with uh, human survival after the uh, death of the body, including reincarnation those are those are the main areas of study within parapsychology but to be fair, it really includes a, a wide range of Things that could be considered paranormal, including UFOs. Oh, you, you study UFOs as well? Well, I personally have, yes. And many parapsychologists are interested in UFOs. You might think of it as a completely separate subject, but when you start delving into individual cases, there's an awful lot of paranormal phenomena, parapsychological phenomena that uh, take place. Uh, in ufo encounters
0: um it it seems like it might be related to consciousness somehow in some cases because it seems like a lot of people that have um ufo sightings they have paranormal sightings as well have you ever noticed
1: that i have noticed it and i've written about it what 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 were your conclusions well i did a 10-year study with a man named Ted Owens. I described this in a book I wrote called The P.K. Man. He uh, exhibited uh, psychokinetic abilities on a large scale. He liked to claim and and provided demonstrations that he could control weather systems, power blackouts, tornadoes, hurricanes, heat waves, cold waves, uh, droughts. And also he claimed he could create UFO appearances, and in fact demonstrated that, and demonstrated it for me. So I have no doubt that there's an overlap, a large overlap, between the field of parapsychology and the study of UFOs. That's amazing. How how did he get a UFO to, do you know how he, I mean, I'm, I'm bewildered. Could you get into it a little bit more? Well, he claimed that he was in telepathic contact with a a group of beings. He called them the space intelligences, hyperspace beings. He said they look like giant praying mantises, if you saw them. He said they're invisible, and they uh, were hovering over the earth in a giant UFO. And he would send them telepathic messages of, of the things that he wanted them to do, and then they would produce these effects that was his story. Uh, I've never been able to validate any part of that story, but when he says, I'm going to produce this effect, and I'm going to produce that effect, I have in my files today uh, 168 documents relating to these demonstrations, and they were roughly, I would say, two-thirds of the time, whatever he said he was going to produce actually did occur, and typically these were Unusual events, things that you would not expect to happen more than one time in a hundred by chance. what, what, all,
0: what uh, If you don't mind, uh, could you get into some of the things he could do?
1: Well, uh, I mentioned uh, UFOs. Let me give you a more concrete example. Uh, I first learned about him in February of 1976. I was visiting my friends Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, two parapsychologists who were conducting research at the Stanford Research Institute uh, in Menlo Park, California. They were getting funding from the CIA at the time uh, and had achieved quite a bit of notoriety because uh, they had published some studies with Uri Geller, the Israeli psychic, and and it created a lot of public attention and controversy. And they were getting letters from this fellow, Ted Owens, who, who said, why are you wasting time with Uri Geller? Because I'm the world's greatest psychic. You should be studying me. And there was a drought going on in California at the time, a serious drought. And he said, to prove to you that I really am the world's greatest psychic. I'm going to end this drought, and you will know that I ended it because it's going to happen in three days. It's go, there's going to be rain and sleet and hail and snow and all kinds of freaky weather. Plus, he said, many UFO sightings, which is a trademark of my demonstrations, now, all of that actually had, oh, and he added, he said, your local newspaper will run a story in three days saying the drought is over. So all of that happened. All and, of that, wow. Yeah. That, that, and that would be typical of, of a demonstration of, of his. Now, Putoff and Targ were very embarrassed because, as I mentioned, they were getting funding from the CIA. and well, they, they, they were did. remote viewers, right? They were stud- doing remote viewing? Yes, that's correct. And uh, they were, as I mentioned, they had also conducted studies with Uri Geller. And Uri Geller was already attracting too much attention. They wanted to be low-key. So I was a graduate student uh, at the time studying parapsychology at Berkeley, And they said to me, you're a promising graduate student, uh, and we can't afford to have such a colorful figure like Ted Owens, who was something of a publicity seeker, uh, working in our institution. Why don't you take the case off of our hands? So that's what I did. I, I took the files. I ended up meeting Ted Owens in England because people there were suffering from a drought in the summer of 1976. And he had been invited to England to end the drought there. It was a very bad drought. The uh, towns outside of London had to have water brought in by truck. And people, when I arrived in London, my friends said, you could get your picture on the front page of the London Times. All you have to do is go down to Piccadilly Circus and carry an umbrella. People will think that you're so strange, they'll take your picture and put it in the newspaper. That's how dry it was. But when Ben Owens arrived in London, once again, it began raining and pouring and there was freaky weather. uh, It was so bad they had to shut down the subways in London. And the local newspaper ran a story saying the drought is now over. That is amazing. I mean, how how did
0: he deal with having that much power? I mean, I, I, what, what what kind of person was he? That he, you know what I mean? Like, there's so much morality in, in having that much power.
1: Well, it didn't go over very well in England because the British are very reserved people. And he, Ted Owens, was something of a, as I mentioned, a publicity seeker and, He had a loud, booming voice, and he tended to brag a lot, which all of those things the British don't like. Uh, They practically booed him off the stage at the conference uh, that I attended. But I had already known about what had happened in California, and I developed a friendship with him and decided to uh, do some research. Let's see, you know, uh, look at the... uh, Overall picture of what he was doing. Now, he spent all of his life, he died in 1987, trying to convince governments and scientists that he was real and that they could harness his abilities for the good of humanity. But what would happen is that people laughed at him. They called him a fraud and a phony. And then he'd get angry and he'd say, Well, I guess I have to teach them a lesson which he did, and some of those lessons were very unpleasant. So oh, wow. he, he died, I have to say, in poverty and in bitterness. Oh, that's not good. Well, I'll switch to the subject.
0: Um, how would you, I want to talk about some of the other um, things of parapsychology. How would you define ESP versus intuition versus
1: clairvoyance? Are they all similar? They're similar, yes. I think of intuition as uh, inner knowing. Intuition is just knowledge that comes to you from inside yourself. And there are many forms of intuition. If If you spend your lifetime in a particular profession, you develop a professional intuition based on years of experience. But extrasensory perception is also a form of intuition. It's one form of intuition. And clairvoyance is one form of extrasensory perception. Well, well, can you define extrasensory
0: perception and then define, define, like, what can you do if you have extrasensory perception and what can you do if you have clairvoyance?
1: Well, let's, you know, really extrasensory perception Essentially, it means knowing something that you should not know, having information about a physical object or a physical target that is removed from you, like if I have a a target in a sealed envelope and I'm located thousands of miles away from you, and I ask you to describe what's inside of that envelope, and you give me an accurate description, that would be clairvoyance. Clairvoyance just means clear seeing. And that would be a form of extrasensory perception. The question everybody is going to ask, well, how did you do that? How is it possible that you are able to accurately describe something in a sealed envelope thousands of miles away from you and you know now these kinds of experiments have been going on as i say for 150 years the data of clairvoyance is overwhelming that it occurs
0: it's this is amazing stuff it's it's very interesting to me um so then how would you uh, and then uh, i
1: interviewed lynn buchanan remote viewer are you familiar with him With Lynn Buchanan, I've interviewed him about uh, five or six times. Now, he
0: told me that remote viewing is more like a martial art, where you have to practice it over and over and over again, and then you tap into your subconscious, whereas it sounds like the ESP and the clairvoyance are more like psychic qualities. Is that correct?
1: Well, that's his way of describing it. But when you say um, what is correct, I have to say this, that, you know, everybody has their own take on it. Lynn Buchanan is a very talented remote viewer. He got his training in the military, and he himself trains many other people. I have enormous respect for him and, and the way he chooses to uh, describe these things is very useful for people. But you could describe it differently. It wouldn't be incorrect. It's not as if there's only one way to look at it. How, how do you look at it? I would say that your ability to accurately describe something in a sealed envelope thousands of miles away from you cannot be explained in terms of an information channel. There's no, we don't know of any information channel that works that way. It cannot be explained in terms of any special organ of perception in the brain either. There's no evidence for any organ of perception. So the way I would explain it would be to go back to what the ancient mystics in every culture have always said, which is that we are one with everything. When a mystic says, you know, I, I became one with the universe, that's literally correct. That you can describe an object sealed in an envelope thousands of miles away because, at the metaphysical level, your consciousness is one with that object. That, uh, you know, the ancient Hindus have this word called Maya, and it means it's an illusion. And, and we go through life under the illusion, a very seductive illusion, that we're all separate from each other and separate from the environment, that there's such a thing as me and the rest of the world, that you can make that division. But all the data of parapsychology and all the testimony of uh, people who have had mystical experiences is is that that really is an illusion. That The fundamental truth is that there's one indivisible universe, and we all share it, and it's connected intimately. Uh, you know, great philosophers like Immanuel Kant, uh, the great German philosopher, even went so far as to say that our notions of time and space are an illusion. That, that's not what reality is like. That's what our brain creates, time and space.
0: Yeah. Um, another, uh, did you ever hear Dr. Richard Allen Miller uh, actually, not. No, um, he he was uh, he, he he trained like Navy SEALs, but he told me that too. He was trying to explain it to me that time and space aren't real. I didn't understand it. Um, I'm I'm I, I, I'm trying to understand it a little bit, but um, I get the gist. um You kind of answered my next question, but I'll ask it anyway. I I was going to ask you, is it possible to train or learn psychic abilities? And I'm guessing that if you get one with meditation and you start to develop your mind, you can. Am I correct?
1: Well, let's take remote viewing, for example. Uh, The typical experience, and I've seen this over and over again, you can take a person who has no background in psychic functioning and they don't meditate and tell them, okay, we're going to do a remote viewing experience and you are going to be the remote viewer. Most of the time they do really well the very first time. It's like a natural ability that everybody has because of the fact that you're conscious and that's what consciousness is. And that's what consciousness can do. Now, what happens then is that, Oh, You begin to say, what did I just do? And you get all emotional about it. And and it can be frightening or it can be exhilarating. Either way, it's a strong emotion. And a strong emotion can cloud your ability to to do it on a repeated basis. So that's where the training often comes in. It's not that you can't do it right away off the bat, just like you give a little child a, a, a ball and they know how to throw the ball or you you know a kid can learn how to ride a bicycle practically the first time they try but doing it consistently and reliably over and over and over again that takes special training now what um what, what psychic ability
0: is it where they're a medium and they can see spirits and stuff like that is is that extrasensory perception well, I and mean, they, they can see like the dead
1: ones, relatives, and stuff. Yeah. Is that? What do you think of that? Mediumship, really. Yeah. You know, it becomes very complex because uh, there's an enormous amount of data that mediums in trance are able to provide information that they could not have nor- known by normal means. So we say that's an example of extrasensory perception. Now, the question is, are they communicating with the dead? That's a lot harder to figure out, because how are you going to prove it? Even if they come up with accurate information that only a dead person would have known, they could have figured it out by clairvoyance. So it could be what we call living agent psi. The fact that mediums come up with accurate information is not by itself proof that they're in touch with uh, the spirits of the dead or that spirits of the dead even survive. Um, However, if you look at the accumulated evidence over 150 years, not just of mediumship but also reincarnation cases, and not just that but also people who have had near-death experiences, and uh, people who see apparitions and uh, ghosts. If you take all of that evidence together, I think you can make a strong case that the human personality does survive death, at least in some instances.
0: I agree. I agree. I think near-death experiences um, are uh, an amazing phenomenon. And it, well, you know what's interesting about near-death experiences? Um, mostly, you hear the same story over and over again. They they have this. Uh, uh, their their bodies in complete pain in the situation they're in, but they pop out of their body and they're over the situation and they see their body. But then someone comes and gets them, but they go so far. But they're told they don't go the whole way to death, and they come back, and they're back in the situation, and they survive. But they have this experience while they are in the near-death experience, and it's usually uh, a scene of something that would be like heaven or, you know, uh, another dimension where where God is.
1: And it do you agree? There's a consistency amongst the uh, reports of near-death experiencers, and almost universally, they come back saying, I no longer believe in life after death. I know. I have firsthand knowledge. That's amazing. Um, I'm trying to think if I have
0: any other questions. Oh. How did you? Uh, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to attack like all the interesting questions and and stuff first. But I wanted to actually actually ask you this too. How did what inspired you to get in this field of study?
1: Well, I had uh, many experiences of my own as a, as a young man, and uh, I have to say, I felt like I was guided by dreams uh, to pursue this uh, line of. Uh, investigation to pursue it as a career. Uh, Also, I, to be honest with you, back in the 1960s, when I was a college student, it was a time when students were taking uh, psychedelic drugs and that opened me up. I was having what I would call mystical experiences, drug-induced, but that also prompted me to want to study this field and learn more about it. So uh, a whole host of experiences uh, pushed me in that direction. Well, you brought up another question,
0: and and this is the biggest one of all. And I remember, I I can't believe I was going to end the interview, and I was about to forget to ask you this. I was going to say, what do you think of taking psychedelic drugs to expand your consciousness, Oh, you, or yeah, do, um.
1: Well, I, I can say personally, just speaking for myself, I probably taken LSD over a hundred times when I was a young man. That's awesome. It didn't do any brain damage that I'm aware of. I'm still a fully functioning human being. In fact, I think I'm functioning at a relatively high level. Uh, I went on to earn a doctoral degree at Berkeley. Um, I think that uh, they were very important, not only for me, but for a whole generation of people having grown up in the 1950s. It's sort of you're, you become socialized, and these experiences just sort of blow the crust right off of that socialization and caused my generation coming of age in the 1960s to begin to question everything, to question authority of of every kind. And uh, I pursued it in in a philosophical way. I think I pursued it in a very healthy way uh, to make a study of it. But I know that many members of my own generation use drugs differently. They used them for recreation. They used them to get, uh, you know, sensations, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Not that I didn't, but uh, that wasn't my main focus. And so there was a fair amount of abuse going on. And, uh, you know, there were suicides. There were uh, people who shouldn't have taken drugs in the first place because they were mentally unstable. So I don't think that anybody needs to take these drugs. I think that they're very good for people who who use it as a tool of philosophical inquiry, uh, as I did, but I, uh, it's not as if I think that the indiscriminate social uh, and recreational use of these drugs is always a good thing. It is not always a good thing.
0: No, no, I definitely think it depends on your, your mental health state, your personality. Um, you know uh what do you think of the people who are trying ayahuasca now and dmt
1: that's a whole brand new thing yeah I've, I've done a number of interviews about it there are casualties just as there were with lsd but i i also know that many people um report positive benefits uh it can help people uh get over alcoholism, for example. It can help people uh, work their way through different psychotherapeutic issues. So when it's done in a a meaningful context, in a supportive environment, as Timothy Leary used to say, the set and the setting are crucial. And if it's done in a spirit of uh, growth and a spirit of philosophical inquiry, they can be very powerful tools. One... uh, Researchers have put it this way, that psychedelic drugs are to the mind what the microscope is to biology. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever, um, did, did LSD ever take you to
0: another dimension? Because um, my experiences are with mushrooms. I rec- uh, recently, I did it for a philosophical thing, too. I wanted to, I wanted to see if it was possible to elevate my mind to get to another dimension. And it seemed like um, the mushrooms just like speeded me up and, and then um, they, they weren't, I don't know, I didn't get to any kind of higher dimension. I got to a higher level of thinking, definitely. I see that, but it, it wasn't as powerful as I thought they would be. It wasn't something like a DMT. What did the LSD do
1: for you? Well, every experience is different. Yeah. Really, what's going to happen with these drugs typically is they magnify processes that are already going on uh, that you're not fully aware of in your subconscious mind. So it's an opportunity for you to explore your own inner dimensions. Then there's the question of all the colors and shapes and forms that come up. And what, what do they reflect? Are they examples of another dimension of reality, or is it just uh, the drug acting on your nervous system? The research shows that actually, even though people are having very profound, vivid experiences on drugs, the brain is quieting down. They tend to quiet the brain. So it suggests that you could be having an experience of pure consciousness. It suggests that consciousness exists well, let me uh, rephrase that. It suggests that the brain exists within consciousness rather than thinking as people conventionally think that consciousness is a product of the brain.
0: So, and then you I think we already covered this, so that takes me back to where does consciousness come from?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I would have to say we... We don't, we don't know. know. It's, it's sort of a given. It may be that consciousness was always there. Yeah. It, and, it's it's a, re, you, you know, that religious traditions tend to imply that there was consciousness, and then out of that came the physical world. Now, some people say, oh, the consciousness was God, but maybe not. There are philosophers uh, who, who would say, no, it's not God. It's just some consciousness, maybe even a primitive consciousness uh, i don't have ultimate answers i don't pretend to have them but well let me ask
0: you this what do you what are your um with all your years of study of parapsychology what are your beliefs of the afterlife like what do you, do you you obviously think our consciousness survives and we we reincarnate
1: well i think some people will reincarnate i don't know that everybody automatically does I there's good evidence that some people do I think maybe you have a lot of options at that point if you're not in a physical body one of those options is to reincarnate another option might be to stay at a certain level in the what you could call the supersensible realm perhaps the astral plane or maybe another option is to merge with the absolute uh so I think there, we have a lot to learn about these things. Yeah, and
0: it, and it we'll never
1: know until that
0: day comes. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's. I mean, it's very hard to
1: understand. I wouldn't say we'll never know. I think if you really want to study it, there's an enormous body of literature. As you you pointed out, there's the testimony of mediums, there's uh, reincarnation cases, there's the testimony of people who have had near-death experiences. I think we're quite capable of exploring what the afterlife realm is really like. Yeah.
0: Well, this was amazing. Um, I, I really enjoyed this. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Um, it was really, it was really cool. You're very welcome. All right. Have a good day.